Fusion Patrol is a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can help support us at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. This is the Fusion Patrol podcast. Each week, we look at a different science fiction TV episode or movie and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight we're looking at the Doomwatch episode, The Human Time Bomb. Our story opens on the ugliest building they could find in the stock footage library, a horrid cement block of 1970s council flats. Here we meet a harried, squalid little family without access to adequate birth control. The head of the family is Mr. Hetherington, and he's late for work at the council planning office, and the crying children and the crowded lifts aren't calming him down much. In fact, he runs right under a car, killing himself in the process, and he does so right in front of Faye Chantry, intrepid member of Doomwatch. Meanwhile, Quist is being pressured by the minister of something or other, for a report on a development. But Quist's report isn't ready yet. While he will get that report out, there just isn't sufficient scientific research out there to reach a conclusion. His gut instinct, though, is against the project. It turns out the project is a continuation of the horrid block of flats that it seems Faye Chantry is now living in. In fact, she's been planted there by Doomwatch for the last six weeks to produce the report on the success or failure of this type of planned development. And she's feeling stressed. Her quarters are cramped, she gets constant obscene phone calls, wolf whistles in the hallway, apathetic neighbors, inadequate elevators, building failures, pathetic windows, and truly, truly hideous doors. She's also feeling that the council planning office is stonewalling her about aspects of the construction and even implies to Mr. Grant, from the planning office, that there might have been something shady going on during construction. The next day, Chantry is granted access to Mr. Scobie in the planning office's records department. He makes accusations in front of Grant and Chantry that they're all in the developer Langley's pockets and that there's a huge scandal. He grows violent and they leave. Ridge comes to see Chantry to urge her to finish, but she tells him she just can't take it anymore. She explains the stress she's been under. Meanwhile, Langley is whining and dining Quist, where they have a philosophical debate about the future of planning and development in the UK. Langley sees standardization and mass production as the logical way forward, while Quist advocates for a more organic and, some would say, eccentric growth pattern. They both acknowledge that growth and resource pressures are problems that need to be addressed, but Quist is not sure Langley's approach is the right answer. Langley wants to know what will be in Quist's report, but warns him that Faye Chantry is prejudiced against him and grinding a not-at-all impartial axe towards him. Later, when Ridge reports back to Quist, he tells him Chantry appears to be suffering from a case of the vapors or something, because, you know, women folk, am I right? This confirms Quist's worst fears. He heads to see Chantry. Chantry, meanwhile, goes to visit Scobie at home, who also lives in the same building, only to find that he had a violent, nervous breakdown and being held, sedated, totally incommunicado. When Quist arrives, 
Chantry realizes that the man who died also worked in the planning office. Could it be that he was murdered? They visit the wife, and she confirms he was afraid, since shortly after they'd come here. Quist takes this to the police, who basically laugh at him, so he agrees it was a dumb idea, and takes Chantry off the assignment. Back at the apartment, Quist is attacked by a rowdy group of children, and when the eldest Hetherington child goes after him with a hammer, Chantry tries to run them both over with a car. Well, technically she was only trying to run the child over. Quist is not convinced. While Chantry packs up that night, her lights go out, and she locks herself out of the apartment. She goes to the caretaker, who is put out for doing caretaker duties in his off time, but he goes to help her anyway. Probably not just because Chantry is a sexy lady and promised to pay him for his services. Quist, returning to London via car and dictating a report based on basically nothing, starts to compare the apartments to Battery Chicken. But when he realizes that chickens are nasty animals, the light bulb goes off and he heads back to Faye, finding her about to kill the caretaker with his hammer. Chantry was suffering, like the other residents, from the somewhat paradoxical isolation and overcrowded conditions, resulting progressively in a loss of self-identity, insecurity, and fear. In his report, he proposes a royal commission to be formed on the roots of violence in modern society. Oh, The Human Time Bomb by Lewis Marks. What did you think of this episode, Simon? Town and Country Planning, by the way. Town and Country, was that the minister? Minister yes. of Town and Country Planning? I mean, that was not obviously <laughs> the minister. That was the uh, his, I don't know, permanent secretary or something. But yeah. No, but it was the minister for Town and Country Planning who the report was being prepared for. Um, okay. I think, I think there's shades of, of, the, of episodes like Time Flight into Yesterday here in the mm-hmm. sense that they've identified a, a kind of a big issue, probably a more social issue in this case, but nevertheless, something that if you were to investigate it, and, you know, we have the benefit of another five decades of hindsight, you would find the data was there, but it's the, it's the kind of thing where you're, where you're going to see significant results in the data and, you know, you, there's large amounts of data available, but this is a TV drama. And so what, what is significant in a large data set has to be extreme in a very small data set. So it has to be people hurling themselves in front of cars or whatever. And so you end up with this extremely strange contrivance where the effects have to be very visible and very immediate, however implausible that is. And you also get every character basically living in the same tower block. Mm-hmm. Even you know, even though the, the idea that the people who designed and constructed this tower block would actually be the type of people who had to live in it is pretty implausible in my view. I mean, I, I'm ready to be stand, uh, to stand corrected if... If uh, you know, if people want to tell me that, oh yes, uh, such and such a an architect or civil engineer was actually housed in one of these places, but hmm. that's hmm. that's not what yeah, it's. For. I, I 
yes. So I have questions and I, I'll, I'll start with the questions. Is that, I think I characterized it as it, but I will, I will make sure that I am correct in that. That would be considered a council flat. Um, well, as you see, that's a good, that's a good question. I, I think the answer is almost certainly yes, but that hadn't even occurred to me. Um, partly, partly, I guess, because of the massive decrease in housing provided directly by councils. Um, and could you explain what a council flat is. is for our Americans who we just kick our poor people out on the streets? So it, it would, what, what we're talking about is housing that is built for uh, those who cannot afford a high rent. And it was predominantly built by local authorities. And the, the, the changes that I've alluded to sort of came about in the 1980s when a lot of council housing was sold off very cheaply to the residents. Um, but of course, then what happened was a, a, a escalation in house prices um, as all the ex-council housing stock immediately increased in value because of uh, nothing to to hold the to hold the the, the prices down. But um, let me ask this question: uh, count, count, Council you housing say can 1980s? refer to? Yes, you said that was sold in the, so Margaret Thatcher. Yes, indeed, correct. Okay, just checking. Well, it had. It, I mean, it's, it's not. It's not a conservative policy. It's something that has been policy across all governments. It's the implementation that. Uh, that is questionable. The the issue with the Thatcher government, of course, was that they didn't replace the housing stock, and that was what caused prices to increase because obviously scarcity. And the, okay. and the, and this is this is the fundamental problem. You you've got you've got more people needing housing than you have housing available, and the quality of the housing is perhaps very low. And council housing, I should say, needn't be high rise tower blocks but the the tower blocks of the 1950s and 1960s were seen as the solution to provide high quality housing at a a much lower price than had been um you know previously possible and therefore this was the wonderful solution because it would mean that loads and loads of people would be be able to move into these high quality flats and upgrade their their standard of living and that was the theory so they are owned by the local council and, very probably or are they sold to the the people the or, they, and they, they were rented the, these or flat, given or the, the chances are that these flats would have been uh, owned by the local authority and and rented at below market rates to the tenants okay and would you have to qualify so in other words uh, you'd have to demonstrate that you are not a person who can afford uh, an, a mansion somewhere, or is that not part of the equation? I, I'm not absolutely sure about the answer to that, possibly. Okay. Although you may have noticed that the, the actual flats, uh, as depicted in this, were of a quite strictly limited size. So the demand management may have come about on the basis that if you could afford something larger, then you most probably would. Okay, that's... Um... A very capitalistic uh, concept, um, and I'm going to guess subletting was not allowed. So, yeah. Oh yes. Um, okay. This this sort of thing, at least, I suspect there are things like this elsewhere in the United States. It's such a big place, you know. There's nothing like this in in my experience 
in the wide open West of the United States. So we, we just don't, the government doesn't help people with, with rent <laughs> problems. That's, that would be compassionate. That's quite tight. Uh, let's go on. It's absolutely. <laughs> How would the billionaires make a profit off of that? Uh, this doesn't make any sense. Um, the people in this, I, I, I guess maybe the thing that, that I noticed, certainly Mr. Hetherington at the beginning, he had a bit of an accent, which implied to me that he was from one of the lesser favored parts of the United Kingdom when it comes to uh, wealth and prosperity. But well, he wasn't from Ampleforth. Is Ampleforth a real place? Oh, yes. Oh, I see. I thought that was the name of the apartment blocks. I assume the apartment blocks were in Ampleforth. Okay. Uh, I they, they just kept, kept calling them Ampleforth, and I thought, okay, that's the name of the, the planned development. But I guess it could be... I knew it wasn't London. I just didn't... I was going to ask you if you had any clue where this was supposed to be. Geographically, well, I've never speaking. been to Ampleforth. I don't know. I, I had always imagined it was a smaller place than would have tower blocks like this. Um, it has a famous private school there, and it's in Yorkshire. Okay. All right. Well, that's getting up there in the north. Mr. Hetherington, I believe, would have been Welsh. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, I thought basically, if I had, if I'd been watching that episode and it had been made in the United States, um, there is just absolutely no doubt that the family depicted as that was would have been of color. <laughs> just, just absolutely positively, that would have been the shorthand for. This is a poor family with too many kids that can't afford. Although the fact that he had a, a seems like a pretty good job does kind of belay that image. But I kind of got the impression that everybody here was pretty working class. Um, well, or but that 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 that. So this is the this is where the the issue I have with the idea that people like uh, Hetherington and Scobie would be living in the apartments doesn't mm-hmm. seem to me to quite stack up because they would be able to afford not to. However well-intentioned and however Brave New Worldish this project would have been, it's clear from the scene with the, the local planning fellow, whose name I've temporarily forgotten, where he says... Grant. Where he, where he, he tells Chantry that her, her apartment as a special favour is a apartment for a i think she's in a family apartment she's in a family um, so b2 a, unit in a b2 unit that was it so it's larger so there's clearly a strict limit on size here and the, you know the the fact was that in the hetherington family's apartment the bed was in the dining room so it was <laughs> yes i noticed that somebody's bed was what what estate agents would no doubt call bijou, uh, and and so yeah, it didn't it didn't quite stack up for me, and I think I, th- I mean I think time has shown, and probably I mean this is this you're already into the 1970s, time had probably mm-hmm. already begun to show that this whole experiment was fraught with problems, and no doubt the. Dumont's writers were keen to to highlight that. But among the problems were the social issues created by the architectural design. And part part of that was 
that it did isolate people in the way that Quist finally describes at the end. And it also does create a situation in which it is difficult to, for whatever reason, it is difficult to police antisocial behaviour. But there may also be an element within that, and I, you know, I don't want to get too deeply into the sociology of um, crime and poverty, but by having, by essentially cramming together all the people who are underprivileged, your they call it the human time bomb. That 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 would be the powder keg in my mind. And and that was my thought too. I mean, if you again, because I I'm not familiar, at least in a firsthand way, with this kind of subsidized housing. That I can imagine that it would be a collection of poor people, for want of a better word, because that's who would it would be a be aimed to serve. So therefore, it would collect them. But we know that that many of the problems that exist in our society are because of this rich, poor, if you want to call it self-segregation, but this rich, poor segregation that occurs based on the forces that, societal forces that exist. That In other words, if you, if you can afford to leave, you do. You do, I mean, it's, yeah. It, you, it's, it's self-segregation, but only that, that, that's only half true. It's only one half that can, that has the means to self-segregate. Uh, poverty does lead to crime. Um, if you're desperate, you you will do what you need to to eat. I mean, that's that's <clears throat> a general theme of humanity. So, I mean, I'm I'm sure it's more complicated than that. But uh, yeah, I'm sure it is. The, I'm the, sure it is. That that that's an important element of it. What what seemed problematic to me in this episode is that they what they wanted to try and do was to sort of showcase all of the issues. So, there, I mean, there are other aspects to that. There's the, there's, there are the inherent issues, but there are also the fact that it's... So, as we said, it's, it's, it's government-provided housing, and therefore it's underfunded. So maintenance and things uh, are not necessarily kept up. The, the idea An on-site caretaker who doesn't is, work... Yeah, it's 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 not a far fetched idea, but the problem the problem is that that they're they're kind of mixing all of this in and they're they're throwing in the stuff about you know window sizes and I just yeah I didn't I didn't even begin to understand Chantry's issue with the windows. It's like they did some experimentation to see if people felt that windows that were larger left them feeling too exposed, and if windows were smaller. They felt too cooped up, and so they found a kind of happy medium-sized window, your sort of Goldilocks window, if you like. And that was somehow bad because it was like uh, a scientific approach or because somehow that was connected with saving yes. money in a way that was totally not obvious I, to me. I got that. I got that. That was definitely an anti anti let's call it anti-market research but it's really anti-science uh thought well, it's anti, about that. it's anti-basing basing a decision but like it's this anti choice is what it is it's not about it's not about what window size works for you 
It's about what window size works mathematically for most people. And if you don't fit inside that, I mean, for crying out loud, it, it would have okay. been slightly okay, better. Sense. It would have been slightly better if the boy, Hetherington Sr., had been trying to pound a square peg into those freaking round holes in <laughs> the kitchen. That would have been like metaphor 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 <laughs> flashing across the room as it was it was just annoying <laughs> like but yeah it it's like well i can't even all right so for example where i live which is a city that has been here for eh, 100 years um it wasn't a city all that time but you know and since the 40s when air conditioning made it a viable place to live uh, it's been built in housing developments developers come in buy up a big chunk of land plan out a community and yes they're single family houses or occasionally duplexes and sometimes apartment complexes sometimes combinations thereof but any housing development you go into the windows are all the same size they don't Nobody builds custom houses unless you are absolutely beyond rich. So you don't get to go and pick your windows, or very rarely. Occasionally, some builders will offer, like, here are your three choices of window sizes on this wall. And, and that does happen. And, and perhaps for exactly the reasons Langley was talking about with Quist, that, you know, is, is it a question of whether people have choice or whether people have been programmed or conditioned to believe they have choice or, when they don't really. Or, or, or perhaps it is because this is the first time that it's a question of scale. It's the scale that it's been done on. And of course, this is, this is the thing that the, the episode manifestly fails to get across. But because, because it's done on this scale, there would have been there would have been a real novelty to that. The idea to you and me that developers would would build a huge number of houses that were very, very similar now. And, you know, houses rather than high-rise flats, it doesn't matter what. It's it's the scale on which it's been done. That that in itself would have been a new thing rather than develop, developments having been done on a much smaller scale, you know, a few houses or maybe a street at a time. I mean, I was lucky enough to grow up in a in a Victorian terraced house, and that was that was mass accommodation in a sense. And yeah, more or less, our windows were the same size, and you could go row after row of uh, street after street, and you could see windows that were more or less the same size. But if you look carefully, you would actually find that every four houses, something about the design changed. So when they built them, they made they they individualized the properties so that and they're they're mirror image houses. So actually, one house would only be identical to one other house. Every other house would be different. Um, and and I'm gonna, you know, question how much change is enough change. I mean, I, I get the word identical means identical, but. You know, he, Mr. The, when the, the conversation about cars, you can have any color you want as long as it's black. But and then Quist goes, but now I can get them in all different colors. And he goes, yeah, that's my point. Marketing has just given you some choices so that you get, you think you're 
getting individual and you're getting, but really you're not. And it's true. I mean, I drive so many, I drive past so many identical Priuses to mine. Once you get one, suddenly yeah. they're everywhere. <laughs> yeah. I look at, I'm like, same color, same year. You know, that's darn, uh, darn. I thought I was like unique down the street, which is obviously not true, but um, yeah, it, it, it uh, none of these things, frankly, that they picked a good window size does not sound bad to me. But she also says that you do things at a level. So she doesn't, she doesn't exactly say, she doesn't exactly say that, well, she does say it's wrong, but it's not quite for the reasons characterized. Uh, the window might be too big. The window might be too small. But then she goes on and sums that up. You make everything to the minimum degree that humans can tolerate. Yes. Right? Which so is, which it, is it, an it's not going to be a question. Point. They're not going to, they're not going to keep making the window bigger and bigger until it's too expansive for you. They're going to make the window smaller and cheaper and cheaper until you can't take it anymore. So I think that was the, the ultimate well, that goal she, of that. If she hadn't, if she hadn't said, you know, they too big and you feel too exposed. If she'd, yeah. if the example had been the windows are made as small as they possibly can without, without people going mad or whatever. And there's a similar thing room to jump out them. talking about, you know, talking about the, the size of the lift being based on hard mathematics and so, and so forth. And again, it's an interesting idea and you can understand him getting angry about it just intellectually in the sense that mm -hmm. there is there is a kind of minimum level. That's his job and that, it's his expertise. And oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You, and, you, and life, and life would worse. become intolerable. When Chantry says, you know, to, to, to take three quarters of an hour to travel 50 yards, you think, yes, I can understand that because of the scale of these things, because, of, because over a certain amount of time, you, that's something, you know, someone having to wait an extra six minutes for the lift one day because it happens to be out of order is not a big deal. But if it happens day after day or, you know, several, several times a week, and not only that, but you've got hundreds and hundreds of people in this situation, and maybe some of them are very phlegmatic and are capable of tolerating life's annoyances, but you're, you, you know, you're also going to have at the other extreme people who are who are not and and the you know are have a have a tendency towards aggression already and therefore are kind of tipped over but it's not interesting drama that's the problem mm -hmm. and it's not a time bomb it's not a time bomb. i think so, so they're going out of their way to try and make this into something that has a more immediately dramatic effect on people than is yeah. plausible I, I think I, I kind of wonder if Lewis Marx came to the Doomwatch writing script editor and said, got this idea about people living in cramped, these new horrible blocks of flats that they're putting up all over the place and they're, they're horrible living conditions. And, and who'd want to live like that when they could be on a nice field, green field? And I want to I want to write this story and I'm calling it the battery people. And they said, oh, <laughs> See, we got a problem. <laughs> like, oh, all right. Yeah. Uh, we've done that one. Right. Let's call it the human time bomb. All right. I'm going to have to go back and make this a little more uh, explosive, eh? Huh? <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> but Louis Marx has is it Louis or Louis already? Exp- uh, I I I don't know. I'm assuming he's British and probably he's Louis, but I don't know. Um, so Lu- British Mr. Marx Louis is Louis <laughs> I, with an S. Yes, I think I think so. When I discovered that Louis Armstrong was actually Louis Armstrong, I was quite surprised because I'd always thought that name pronounced Louis. But uh, he does get called Louis Armstrong sometimes. Me. Well, fair enough. But I believe he called himself okay. Lewis. Okay. Um, I've always wondered about that. So, anyway, Go Mr. Marx has, Mr. Marx. I thought, it explored explored these these uh, these themes of the, of the kind of um, people people from a kind of background of living in a bucolic idyll. Um, somewhere and then being sort of transported into a very industrialized modern day he did it incredibly effectively in the islanders mm-hmm. but this doesn't have the same it doesn't have the same narrative strength or, or dramatic impact how great would this story have been if the building was filled with the people from the invasion <laughs> it would have been interesting <laughs> Oh, well, <laughs> they missed one there. Maybe in the revival. <laughs> there's another Maybe. There's another big problem, I think, with this episode. Um, and in some sense, it's a throwback to series one, Quist, um, who was, I felt, a more difficult character to have any sympathy with. I'm not saying he's extremely sympathetic in series two, but as a, as a manager of his department, he <laughs> certainly had some failings. And oh yeah, the way in which this one is dealt with is that is that we have Chantry as the the battery person being cooped up, and the effect that it has on her is to, as you know, as it does on Hethington and Scobie and other people, is to make her extremely anxious and to make her to to exacerbate her reactions to certain situations but they're real situations they're real frustrations and <laughs> there are there are actually genuine uh fears around threats of violence there so yeah and Chris's reaction to all of that as he sits around with langley drinking champagne is to basically as you alluded to in your synopsis dismiss everything as oh well you know she she said yeah she's a bit hysterical it's like uh. he he gives virtually no credibility to the theory that actually and 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 ridge is even the same he's he he goes in there expecting to he he thinks that she's not doing her job properly i know that the sexism in this episode is staggering yes just i say when when ridge goes to see her and he talks with her she she tells him some of the problems she's having and ridge goes back and just makes up crap whole cloth oh i think she's just missing her daughter who's got asthma off in the countryside and it's just you know how women are i was like okay did you mention the obscene phone calls did you mention the 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 problems that she's told you about with the planning commission and with all of the stuff going on there and the people dying and things. Oh no, no. It's just, you know, women. Yes. I, yes. and Ridge is obviously 
a pig, has always been. He's written as a chauvinist pig, and but even that seemed over the line to me. That that just seemed like yes, because he's exploitative rather than in unsympathetic normally. Yeah, I think, and I think Quist has a tendency to be more unsympathetic, but but the whole kind of pull yourself together, Faye, it shows absolutely no curiosity about her state of mind, which in itself is strange enough because you're thinking, well, you know, you put someone into this situation, wouldn't you, wouldn't you be monitoring their health, you know, both in, in physical and mental terms apart from anything else. Um, but, and certainly not to ha- not to have any sort of trust in, in one of your team like that. It, it, it just extraordinary. Yeah. And then Quist to just be like, I was afraid of that. It's like, yeah, exactly. Wow. It's just confirmed my worst suspicions. It's, you know, my fault. I should never have employed a woman in the first place. What was I thinking? Yeah, it it was, it was, it was bad. And then, and then at the end, when, when Quist actually arrives at the hammer scene. Yes. He obviously Chantry is having a bit of a breakdown there. She's yes. reacting in ways that no one would suggest would be the best way to react. Yeah. But I I would question I mean, the implication is that it's not a justifiable way to react. And so Quist turns up and finds the, the caretaker there and immediately takes the side of the caretaker. And yet Literally, seconds before, regardless of regardless of Chantry's state of mind, she's asked the man to leave her flat, leave. and he has refused. There's no there's no question of an implied threat there. It's explicit, and yet that in itself is just dismissed, and almost worse than it being dismissed by Quist. It's almost it it's dismissed by the program makers. I, I'm going to say that I. F- felt and in no way justifying absolutely not i'm i'm trying to i'm trying to wind my way through the mindsets of the characters here he goes down or she goes down to the caretaker and he seems as skeezy as he possibly could be when she comes down and and asks for help and offers to pay him and i'm trying to imagine in my mind that he's thinking this is like something he's seen in a porno oh i'm a lonely woman and our (laughs) lights have gone out in my room dear mr electrician could you come down and lay some conduit for me and 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 i can actually see john uh, maybe graham chapman and eric idle in that scene and and so when he's goes He's got that, I'm a rapist leer on his face. And when he goes up the elevator, he's, and he's saying things like, so you're living all alone, are you? You're feeling kind of lonesome. He's got that rapist sneer on his face. But when she, when he fixes the lights, yes, he doesn't leave. But the actor's not playing it quite the same anymore. He's not playing it as skeezy as he was down in the elevator and i'm like wait is this supposed to be a misunderstanding and he's just 
you know, in 1970, you don't know to get out or, or is he really there to try to, is he, is he there to try to rape her? Or is he there because he thinks she's leading him on, which is still rape, but I mean, you know what I mean? Um, in the scheme of 1971 context, um, I, I I couldn't figure it out because it did feel like he changed a bit. I'm not saying he was right. I'm just saying he was not as bad as he was in the elevator or in the hallway. Well, no, he maybe he he maybe wasn't quite as he wasn't leering in the same way. But his his line was, "I'll leave when I'm good and ready." That's that's true. That's not concern for Chantry. That is that is very explicitly you you don't get to decide this. I'm the one with the power here. I like I say I'm um in no in no way saying that there is wasn't <laughs> completely improper. I just was curious why they played him differently up at the top. And this leads I to I another know. question. Was there a plot to to fluster Chantry or is this all paranoia and circumstance? Did did the guy get taken away in sedation because of uh, he, he really did flip out and had to be sedated or was that a result of, of Grant going back and saying, we need to do something about SCOBY? Uh, were the, were the obscene phone calls meant to rattle Chantry from somebody in Lang Langley's organization? I mean, we don't get anything there. The problem is the drama is it, the, you can't have, you can't have your cake and eat it there. It's like, because Scobie is living in the building, either it's living in the building that is having this effect on him, which, you know, is, is one dramatic approach, or it's, there is this conspiracy afoot, in which case it's not living in the building that's having this effect on him. And you've got to have one or the other. If it's the building, there's no conspiracy. If it's conspiracy, it's not the building. Mm. I, and that may be why this episode, I think, ultimately probably fails, is it can't really decide what it wants to be. I, I do want to throw out here that I really liked the scene with Mrs. Frank, who has met a woman, Chantry, who showed some basic human kindness and says, yeah. you know, I need to make a friend with that woman. I'm going to go around and have tea and, and chat. And and that is the human spirit reasserting mm. itself in adverse conditions. You know, this is this is a woman who is going to adapt and survive, and and perhaps not devolve into a chicken biting the beaks off of each other. And and uh, <laughs> so I I did like it, that I, scene. I, yeah, I yes, and I think one of the things that the episode actually does do quite well is to create this sense of social isolation within the building and so the scene you're talking about exemplifies this by illustrating how lonely this miss frank is and she mm -hmm. you you see how keen she is to find someone who she can talk to someone who she can connect with and she that just, just shows an excuse yeah yeah but it but it shows how how isolating how isolating it is for her normally and it's, yes, it's, only, that too. it's only because there was this dramatic, terrible incident. She was brought into contact with Faye in the first place. Yeah. And she did, you know, give the, the tale about how it used to be when she lived in a house and, you know, she 
see the other woman's kitchen over the fence. And so that'd get them talking. Um, you know, it, it just kind of, I, I think the whole thing highlighted is that there are people who will do that, who will find a way to make a connection. And, and maybe it's certainly she's lonely, but you know, it just, it takes some, something there just has to be like a, a, a catalyst in the mix that gets you to, to break that barrier. And in this case, she saw an act of kindness from, from Faye. And she said, well, there's, there's a person that I'll, I'll give it a try. So I, I, I think the scene was kind of necessary, uh, in the, in the course of the film to kind of show the impact on people who aren't freaking out and jumping under yeah. buildings. Um, yeah. my notes are in very bad order. So if this makes no sense where we're going next, uh, in 1971, there were approximately rounding 56 million people in the United Kingdom uh, per the census. And according to Langley, in the year 2000 is going to be 80 million people in the UK, which is a pretty good, pretty good jump. Yeah. However, there were in fact actually only 59 million people in the United Kingdom in, in 2001. I was um, going to guess 60, so there you go. But we haven't reached yeah. 80 yet. Oh, no, you're at 65 million now, as of 2016. So uh, all those problems that they were having uh, went away when everyone left for Brexit. Um, <laughs> I, I'm curious as to why they were predicting such a population increase. Was it, was it unrestrained birth? Was it immigration? Uh, I, think it was, I think it was laziness. I think what they were... What they were driving at was that there are these there are these big conversations where they say you know this this the, again it's this artificial deadline we've got to get this report right as in we've only got six weeks to write this report but it's going to define how we live as a species for the next hundred years that does so seem a little it's hyperbolic uh, and hyperbolic yes that's the word i was looking for <laughs> i and, and and i think the year 2000, I mean, I remember the year 2000. I don't remember the year 1971, but I remember the year 2000 seeming like an awfully long way into the future. And that said, mm -hmm. and, you know, that was sometime after 1971. It would have had to be. And so, you know, I think the year 2000 there just stands for a long time in the future. And 80 the million future. people sounds, is, there's a huge number of people. So it's... A, it's big numbers being thrown around to illustrate how important these discussions are that they're having. These are the same staples of writers, stable of writers, uh, although I don't think Louis, Mar Louis Marx ever did anything for Space 1999. That in, you know, early 1970s <laughs> predicted that we would have moon bases in the year 1999. And, uh, and I remember, I remember... I can say absolutely when that show came out, I thought, wow, 1999 is a long, long way off. I'll be 35. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> so uh, it's, I'll be so old. <laughs> um, and I'm looking back on that from the same distance, the other direction. <laughs> uh, just about. Um, is it proper that Quist was having dinner with Langley? No, I don't. I don't think so. I thought that was odd. Um, 
I would have I would have interpreted that as uh, and I you know, just from the staging. Here's a drink. Here's this big meal. Uh, you know Langley's footing the bill on that. That yeah. that, that yeah, smacks sure. of bribery. <laughs> Surely, yeah. yeah. And it worked because Quist immediately takes Langley's side over Chantry because yeah, she's a woman and she didn't buy me a huge dinner and drinks. <laughs> So, ah, yeah. I know. I mean, I think that point was being made none too subtly with the whole have some more champagne, but nevertheless, I think you're right. That layout of food that was on that table was kind of ridiculous when you looked at it. It's like, wow, that is, that's bribery food. That's a bribery meal. That's, he wants something from Quist. Yeah, I, and I know that Britain has a, a reputation British government has a reputation for being uh, uh, I don't know that you use the term old boys club but basically all the old, old school boys running things from a cl- top of the class kind of um, <clears throat> the old boys structure back. although I don't think Langley was one of them I think he was supposed to be Australian he did sound Australian to me yes and and his name was Billy and I, I somehow don't think that they would have allowed that if he, if he was from Eton or something. Um, <clears throat> we have we have members of the royal family called Billy. You do now, but nineteen seventy one, did you? Yeah, we we've 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 had monarchs called Billy. All right. Well, I, I just noticed that on the credits roll by. I thought that's kind of odd, Sir Billy, <laughs> Sir Billy Langsley. Okay. All right. It doesn't just really doesn't roll off the tongue like you would expect. Um, so what the heck was the research that Chantry was doing? This seemed more like something a writer would do to try to get the feeling of the place that he wants to write a murder mystery set in. Plunk them down in the flats of apartments. How is how is that actually research? Is she interviewing the tenants? Is she she's kind of going yeah, over the well, building yes, records? That was what but, I was assuming. But I didn't see her do much of it. No, because it was just all we got was that she's been living here and she's not getting anything done because all the obscene phone calls and 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 caretakers knocking her pictures over and stuff. It was just although I do. I, I have to say, as a landlord, when she asked the caretaker, how did you get in here? Because master key, it's like, does not every tenant in the world know that the owner of the property or his agent has a key to get in? Well, we don't know that she's a tenant, but also if I came home to find my landlord or someone there unexpectedly, I think I would be asking that question rhetorically. Okay, perhaps. I didn't think she was asking it rhetorically, but... Um, no, perhaps I, not. It didn't, it didn't feel like that. And I will admit... and. and I, let me clarify this. I have a management company that handles my rental property. So I personally don't actually have a key, but my agent <laughs> does. And they are required to give notice. Exactly. Any and of your typically speaking, this will be relieved. Yeah, they are required to give notice, but there are some limits to that. If they give notice and they cannot contact the tenant, they ultimately will have the right to <clears throat> enter the premises. And if you call the tenant and say, could you come up and take a look at the lights in my apartment? You mean call the caretaker or 
Yeah, in this case, call yeah, call the caretaker and and say, you know, can you take a look at the lights in my apartment? They're they're busted. You know, I don't know how that phone call would go, but typically speaking, they would say, well, I could come up today and take a look at it. Uh, if you're not there, can I come in and look at them? I yeah, mean, you, yeah. you just do that. But it just it did seem kind of like maybe they were explaining the concept of living in an apartment to the audience. No, of course, you have no privacy. They can come and go as they want. They can't. But in th- theoretically, they can if that makes sense. I mean, if they were doing something wrong, they definitely could. Or they were well, acting I, in I don't, I don't know how things stood in 1970. I would be surprised. Yeah, I'm sure that I'm sure that there are rules with regards to occupancy and and privacy and and whatnot. But there's also, I mean, eventually they they could be dead, and somebody's going to have to go in there and find out if they if they've died in the apartment or they've abandoned the apartment and not told anybody. I mean, this at some point. But that is also, in fairness, that is also true of private property. Well, then it would be the police. Yeah. Yeah. I think typically it would be the police. So. Did Quist have a new office? I didn't notice that. You didn't notice didn't it? Really notice it, it was a completely because when was he in the office? Because we didn't see when they were having we coffee. Didn't see Jeff, we didn't see Colin, we didn't see Pat at all in this episode. But when they were in having coffee, who was with Quist Ridge. and the minister's man and Ridge for that matter? Oh, because remember the 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 guy said, you know, with your staff, your scientific staff, I'd expect the coffee to be a great cup of coffee. So, so yes, but it was, so, it's just yeah. so it was his office. Utterly, I, yes, utterly, I completely really different that. set. Good call. Just, like he was just in the old one yesterday. <laughs> the last episode, anyway. Um, was the kid attacking him with a hammer? I wasn't sure whether it was Chantry imagining that. Okay, I mean the kid obviously did have I, a I, hammer. Either, yes, he did, but it was supposed to be a toy hammer. One, or maybe it wasn't. Maybe been allowed to play with a, a real hammer but one way or another it was either supposed to mean that the building had had an effect on chantry to the point where she started seeing violence even That's... even minor acts of violence start to look extreme or the building has an effect on the kids so that they they become feral you know lord of the flies well, type thing i think them throwing quist to the ground demonstrated that quite nicely yeah but yeah but i think but, i think we were, i think kid, both things were suggested the problem was it wasn't clear which of those was being exemplified in that scene hetherington's kid when quist and chantry left their apartment that boy got up and ran to the door and opened the door and was like looking out you know kind of kind of with a sneer on his face i first i thought he was gonna he didn't look like, sneering he looked distressed I don't know what he looked like. He wasn't the greatest of actors. But when he ran Why to the my door, my first crying? thought, Why? my thought was he was going to tell them something. Hey, mister, my dad said, yeah, but he didn't. He just went to the door and he was like, whatever he was doing. So, and then he also attacked the police earlier in the episode. I can't remember, but frankly, Drew was such, such an awful <laughs> police officer. I, would oh yes, I no agree. hesitation in uh, forgiving him for attacking the police whatsoever. Yeah, but unless the kid knew him, because he just came in and was, uh, yeah, he was just it was, a I, just, I noted it. I think. 
I noted it very quickly in the episode when the boy started pounding on the policeman. I was like, okay, that kid's got some anger issues. But this was before I knew that this was a, the building is causing them all to go crazy episode. I didn't even get that when he was having trouble with the elevator. I mean, just like, hey, he's late. This stuff happens. Some days it's a bad day on the elevator. I get that. Um, and, and obviously these people don't like you. Obviously, you're the weird man out that they don't like. And so that was the kind of vibe I was getting off the, of the story up to that point. So, um, all right. Um, it is kind of a strange place to start, apart from anything else. That opening. I mean, I guess it's... I, I get that it is supposed to be a dramatic pre-title sequence in which someone dies. But yeah, the story, they, they the story picks somebody. up with Chantry six weeks into this assignment. So we never get to see, for example, the, the progression of deterioration of her state of mind or any of that stuff. Uh, we don't even get to see it in right. flashbacks. It's like this is, this is where we're picking up the story and we've just got to figure out for ourselves what, what of what we are seeing is actually normal and just the way these characters are and what of it is actually caused by the way they live and the building they're living in. Yeah. All right. Last question for me or last topic. It's not exactly a question. It's an observation. It's a question. Obscene phone calls. (laughs) Perhaps I've led a sheltered life. I don't understand the point of obscene phone calls. I I know people that have made crank phone calls and that's done randomly. At least as far as I know, it's done randomly. Or at least anyone I've ever known that did a crank call did it randomly. Um, you don't watch The Simpsons, Are these calls... Are these... Hmm? You don't Pardon? watch The Simpsons? Uh, no. No, I figured if it goes on 50 seasons, I might start watching it. Because it, by then it's probably gotten <laughs> gotten okay. Yeah, you're going to um, be able to watch it. <laughs> I won't because it's going off to Disney+, Plus, and I definitely will not be getting that streaming service. At least in the United States. Are they targeted? So in other words, does the person I think calling, they can be. They can be. person calling Chantry know that they're calling a sexy lady? Or are they just, you know, it could be Ridge that answers the phone. In which case, then they would probably obscene phone call back and forth um, at each other. But, <laughs> well, I could, okay. All right. Truth be told, Ridge meets this bird. We'll use his terminology. <laughs> bird. And, uh. He takes her out and he sleeps with her and uh, uses a razor to chop up his face the next morning. I could picture his sort of, hey, I'd like to go out with you again to be to make an obscene phone call to her that night. I could picture Ridge doing that because he's a pig. Um, but again, that's targeted. It's somebody he knows. I don't understand the purpose of it. I don't understand. I assume that it's a sexual thing. <laughs> I don't understand why that would get anybody in hot and bothered. Well, I and... don't know. I think I think it might be a power thing. I mean, I don't know. I don't, it's, a, it's a psychology question, isn't it? I don't think there's any doubt that they are often targeted. Do you think Chantries but... were targeted? Yes. Okay. So somebody else in the building, one of, like the guy that Wolf whistled her in the hallway, got her number and, and he's the one doing this. Well, uh, why, because... else would, why else would she get so many obscene phone calls? just in the six-week period her name's yeah somebody put her bat number on the bathroom wall that's possible that's that's well that's, that's possible but it's still a form of targeting so it's the same yeah thing. yeah 
I don't know. It was all it was all kind of weird. Also, the fact that she was able to take the call, listen for a while, know what it was, hand the phone to Quist. What did Quist take? Like 10 seconds before he got the thing up to his ear? And it was still going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, hang up. Just hang up. <laughs> I, I know it's not... I'm not saying you want to... It just... It seemed odd that the person at the other what what does the person at the other end think if you pick up the phone and you don't immediately hang up on them that that you're into this that you're going along with it i don't it's such a bizarre it's such a bizarre thing and then to have thrown it in this episode it's just like all right I'm, it's all weird anyway any last thoughts uh on this this episode which I would say it's not one of the best we've seen. No, I mean I think I think it's I don't I don't I don't know what I don't know what people thought or knew about tower blocks in 1971, but they didn't get it wrong as an issue. You know, we in the decades ahead, what they were talking about would would continue, and you know, tower tower block living still is it is one of the it is one of those things that that permeates. British culture and indeed British politics, because um, and and by I think the first forget the name of it now, but there was a particular tragedy in a perhaps a poorly constructed tower block yeah. in the late nineteen sixties. Oh, oh, the sixties, yeah. Um, and yes, it, um, here in the in 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 London in twenty seventeen, there was a terrible, terrible fire in a in a tower block. Which was exacerbated by refurbishment that was done cheaply and without proper attention paid to the fire regulations, building regulations. And so, you know, from the point of view of having picked on an issue that was of great importance and which would remain so for at least the 50 years following, they've, you know, they've hit their mark. Again, the problem is the drama doesn't hit its mark it's not a it doesn't it doesn't have the the narrative that actually makes for any kind of dramatic impact within 50 minutes of the story hmm. all right well simon thank you for joining me it's a pleasure as always and listeners i hope you'll join us all again next time on fusion patrol you've been listening to fusion patrol a listener supported podcast Find out how you can be a sponsor and get early access to all episodes and more at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. Come join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. All episodes are available at fusionpatrol.com. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production.